Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm a ruling elder at Mercy Hill. I'm also the host and the editor for The Deeper Cut podcast. And I was in the editing studio this morning getting the episode ready to be uploaded this week. And I noticed that although we pretend to be professionals, we often (laughs) fall well short of that definition and uh, we encountered a few technical glitches this week while we were recording. Phil and I thought that we had caught them and fixed them in studio, and that turned out to not be completely the case. And so uh, we are missing our normal introductions to this week's episode. I wanted to jump on here quickly and, and welcome you and thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. You'll hear us jump right into the conversation in just a few moments. But I just wanted to take the opportunity again to to welcome you to this week's episode and also thank you for following along with us and joining us weekly in our conversations about the sermons that are preached from the pulpit at Mercy Hill. I hope you enjoy this week's episode on Joseph's wisdom. And as we are a few days from Christmas, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. We are continuing in the Patriarch series. Yes. And um, and it's almost Christmas. It's almost Christmas. Yes. One week away. And um, we have actually already gone through the Patriarchs, really. We're, we're on to the progeny of the, of the Patriarchs and Joseph. And this was your second sermon explicitly about Joseph mm-hmm. this past week in Mercy Hill, um, looking at his wisdom. And you, in the Spirit's leading, decided to preach on 10 books, 10 chapters in Genesis. Right. <laughs> we'll let the listeners determine how wise that was. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but per, per your definition, or the definition that you gave during your message, you know, wisdom was um, like practical application of, of God's law. I think is mm-hmm. the definition you gave. So that pra- would... F- practical and creative. And creative, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that that's... There's a lot of breath there, breath there with a D. But um, that... I don't know. I think a lot of times we might attribute... We say something is, is wise or not, and we might not actually mean that in mm-hmm. true sense of the definition of wisdom well in the sense that i practically and creatively applied god's law do not linger too long in one part of the bible mm. or you're gonna your wheels your your chariot wheels are gonna get stuck in the mud <laughs> so in that sense just wanting to move through the patriarchs not as in an overview manner but we've certainly gone into some detail. But mm-hmm. um, verse by verse preaching is not the only way to preach, and there's more than one way to go verse by verse through the Bible as well. Hmm. Um, because verses are what they are, this is a homiletics point, they're superimposed on, particularly in the Old Testament, on a narrative. The, the verse-by-verse approach can tend to be pedantic and actually somewhat uh, self-centered in terms of the themes that, are, that emerge. You wind up 
latching on to a word, for instance, and making much of a word or an idea that's in one verse. Hmm. That's far out of balance from its significance in the overall story, which means that in in pursuing a quote-unquote God-centered approach to exegesis, i.e. verse by verse, i.e. not skipping anything, i.e. Mm-hmm. the most glorifying t- to God, mm-hmm. you wind up actually inserting more of the human element than you're usually willing to admit. Mm-hmm. So, um, what's, what's the message of the passage, and in what way to the do the words and the phrases and the ideas, the paragraphs, um, how do they contribute to the message? And then in wisdom, hopefully spirit-forged wisdom, what is the spirit saying to the churches today? So that, that's the spirit of, hmm. of why I picked such a big passage. Yeah, you're not getting any criticism from the guy behind this microphone. You know, I, th- I think it was... Um, I think particularly in the Old Testament and maybe specifically in the Pentateuch, for those of us who are familiar with those books in the Bible, it's sometimes hard to see the bigger picture, the larger narratives, because when you're reading it, it's sometimes it's, it's difficult to get Mm -hmm. through it. Um, or you've read it so many times that you kind of have the idea of the story before you you actually read it again, and so your 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 head is filling in gaps with things that may or may not actually be there because you think you know what's coming next. Um, you mentioned um, from the pulpit that I think you had mentioned this that you read this story multiple times, and every time you notice something different, right? right. Um, which is. I mean, I, I would have been concerned if that wasn't the case, Phil, because right. it's God's word and it's living and active and, and you you should, because of the Holy Spirit at work and you should pick up something different. But I think that also uh, applies to not just you as the pastor who's preparing to preach a sermon, but as us as readers, and yourself too, just readers of God's word. Um, sometimes it's helpful, and I think I've even mentioned this on this podcast in an episode a long time ago, at this point that sometimes it's helpful to to read a huge like read the entire book mm-hmm. in one sitting or read multiple chapters in one sitting i have a copy of the esv it's called the reader's edition and there are no verse numbers interesting so there are um actually there's no chapters either it's just divided by book so you get all of genesis boom wow as genesis and I don't read it every day, but it is helpful. I pick it up occasionally to read large portions just to read it like a book, mm-hmm. you know, to, to pick up the story. And so any getting back to your sermon, um, if you would have taken even two of the ten chapters and just focused on that, we would have missed out, I think, on the larger point that God was leading you to make right. to our church. And not that you couldn't have made the same kind of point from a, s- a smaller section of the narrative, but it is n- not nearly as evident, or you might, to your point, have kind of shaded it a certain way because of that particular part of the story as mm-hmm. opposed to the whole narrative. 
So the narrative, I guess, just for context sake, oh, this is where I say, please hit pause and go and listen to the sermon. Um, so n- now that that's out of the way, uh, the narrative that we're talking about in Joseph's life was, um, well, I guess almost his, almost his whole life in the grand scheme of things, but really the latter half of um, when he rises to prominence in Egypt and then kind of plays some... I won't say play some tricks, but has some interactions with his his brothers, right? Um, in God's providence, um, them needing assistance during the famine, and God putting Joseph in this position of authority, and not only that, but you know, God um, cluing Joseph in to the dream that he he gave to Pharaoh of what was going to happen, and Joseph having the wisdom from God to know how you know god interpreted the dream through joseph and then they were able to put plans in place so that they had the storehouses full so you know what i mean so all of these things come about um through joseph but really at at god's good pleasure Mm -hmm. for his people one more point on the and that you did a good job of kind of setting the stage there tim but before we get off the homiletics i have in front of me a series of sermons by Alistair Begg on the life of Joseph hmm. that actually were the inspiration to me to preach this in the first place. Hmm. Um, not the Patriarch series per se, but I was so looking forward to getting to Joseph because when I probably, uh, my dad and stepmom got me these sermons because they, they like uh, Dr. Begg and they like his preaching and um, his church is nearby where uh, my stepmom has family up in Cleveland. But um, I probably listened to these sermons, I'm trying to think, 15 years ago, hmm. 16, I don't, I don't know, I'm not looking at the, the date on the, uh, their CDs though, so that, that dates them somewhat already, <laughs> doesn't it? The CDs still exist. It's much harder to find a CD player than it is that's to find right. a CD. That's right. <laughs> so, but I think he's got, he has to have um, 20 to 25 sermons on Joseph. Mm. And they're all, I mean, one after the other is just really, really good uh, instruction in the, in the word. Mm. So there certainly are ways to handle Joseph a lot more exhaustively than I did. Sure. Or that I'm doing, because I think we've got a couple more yet to go. Maybe you'll come back to Joseph sometime down the road. I was appreciative of the message that you that you gave this week um, about Joseph's wisdom and also making us not just uh, helping us to to understand well what is wisdom, what does that look like in this narrative in Joseph's life, but then really kind of um, throwing out some difficult questions or things to think about, to contemplate. Mm-hmm. Well, what, is that, what does that look like, you know, in, in life? Even not the specifics of life, like how are you, how can you be wise in this particular circumstance? But, you know, we see Joseph making some decisions that with his brothers that could be on one side of the coin looked at as rather harsh or manipulative or 
not so gracious. There's probably a few other words you could mm-hmm. use there. And then on the other side of the coin, we see Joseph kind of continually attributing glory and honor to the Lord and what God's plan was, not his plan. Uh, he provides for his his family. He doesn't ultimately hold it over their head and, and punish them in, in any real way about it. You know, when it comes, when you look at the bottom of the ledger, um, so like what, what side is the right side here? Yeah. Before we do that though, I, I spent in my first point, I spent some time trying to anchor Joseph's over, you know, kind of establishing Joseph's character as a man who feared God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wh- quite a number of inferences I'm making here, but, you know, from 17, kind of a plucky youth with, with a dream and a coat, and uh, uh, knowing that he's his father's favorite. So from, from that point, you know, 20, 25 years later, um, with all the power in Egypt behind him, what do we see in terms of, you know, breaking through the story of Joseph's sanctification? And so, of course, when he says to Potiphar's wife, I will not do this because I could lose my job, he doesn't say that. He says, I will not do this and sin against God. Right. Well, that's the the hallmark of somebody that fears God is someone whose behavior ultimately is being guided not by what other people will say, but by, I, lo- I love, I think it's Ed Welch's book, When when People Are Big and God Is Small. Yeah. So for, for, for Joseph in Potiphar's bedroom, when, when, when his wife is saying, lie with me, you know, he's not worried about Potiphar's opinion. He's, he's worried about the Lord. And then later in, in, the, um, in the, the prison, his first chance to interpret dreams with the baker and the, and the cupbearer, he insists that the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. And then again, before Pharaoh, he says the same thing. Um, and Pharaoh picks up on it when Joseph says, there's nothing in me, Pharaoh says, well, then what has to be in you is the Spirit of God, because that's the only way that, that you could be telling me these amazing, mm-hmm. these amazing insights and come up on the spot with this incredible plan. And then, of course, for me, one of the most important points that I made in the message about Joseph fearing God was the naming of his children. Right. Um, So that, Tim, I think that sets the stage for interpreting the harsh treatment, which was my second point. Mm-hmm. Um, because if Joseph is just hell-bent on revenge, he isn't fearing God. But I think, in as you see his treatment of his brothers, it's not just harsh treatment, he's... He's overwhelmed with grief and sadness and joy through the three or four times that he breaks down in tears. 
Yeah. Um, and if it's harsh treatment, it's, it's a harsh grace. I mean, it's, he's giving money back. Yes. You know, he's not sending them with, with rotten grain in their sacks. It's perfectly good grain. It's like he's killing them with kindness. It, it seems to be if your enemy is hungry, give him something to drink. Drink, And in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. I mean, that's Romans 12, 20, and that's what Joseph's doing. Yeah. So this wisdom um, in our pre-show conversation, I was uh, suggesting that Joseph is kind of previewing what Jesus will say when he teaches his disciples amongst the unbelieving world as you're doing your gospel work be as wise or as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves i think that's what joseph is mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. I, I agree with you i don't see revenge happening really <clears throat> and i say that because it, you just made the point so i'm not gonna <laughs> i don't need to restate it word for word but he he's he's being very gracious, even in what he's choosing to do, and even though that's applying some pressure and some stress to his family, it's great. It's very gracious, even practically speaking. You know, it's not like Joseph withholds anything from them. It's not like he hurts them in any way. Um, he's not trying to undermine them or subvert the plan in order to punish them by making them, like... I don't know. My my head went, when you're talking about revenge, my head went to the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. And the same kind of situation where it's like, here's a guy who, you know, everyone thought he was dead. They were told a lie about how he died. And he now, now he comes to prom, you know, he rises to prominence and he holds that over everyone's head. And he doesn't tell anybody who he is until the very end. But even as he doesn't reveal his identity... Everything that he's doing is for revenge mm. explicitly. Mm. It's not because I'm trying to be gracious. It's not because I'm wanting what's best for you. It's because I want to I'm trying exact to prove it to as you. much punishment on you as I possibly can. Wow. Um, and I don't see that in Joseph. I don't see him see, trying if, to if do I that. were if I were uh, an esteemed English teacher like our other ruling elder is, <laughs> who also is an aspiring preacher, I might have had that. Literary panache to <laughs> come in with the Count of Monte Cristo. You know, that's like a very Tim Keller move, right? Is to kind of tie into literature or something. Like There's only this. one. There was only one Tim Keller. So or Will Bouse for that matter. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I'll take our uh, elder over. Yeah. Well, Tim, we trust is on to bigger and better things. Amen. Yep. I thought just it might be helpful or edifying to maybe um, hear a couple of commentary, reflect just some brief quotes from some of my commentaries on the harsh, what we're calling the harsh treatment idea. And this is, this is, uh, This is uh, Bruce Walke. Joseph's motives in using harsh words against his brothers are ambiguous and probably complex. So it's, it's worth, that, that's a great insight. It's, s scripture is painting 
Joseph with like watercolors. This is not like uh, an exact engineering drawing. It's there's ten there's tension. You you were not told mm. if Joseph is right or wrong. And I, I think I actually mentioned this in my messages. Nowhere is it explicitly stated that Joseph is wise. Where we jump into the story and we kind of live the story out. It's so detailed. Uh, as we walk these 11 chapters of scripture, um, more like 14 if you start in the very beginning, but as you walk through the whole story with Joseph, you're just left with so many impressions Mm. um, and questions. Um, What kind of holy book does this? You know, couldn't God make it easier for us and just tell us, okay, be like Joseph, do this, do that. And so I like Walkie's uh, perhaps that would be a, a constructive critique for, well, and tell me what you think, Tim. Could I have been a little, because I was like, Joseph, man, he nailed it. He 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 was pursuing justice creatively and winsomely and uh, modestly, and we need to we need to kind of uh, maybe Waltke's a little more nuance is is appropriate here. What do you think? Um, I th- think I, I pref- I preferred the, your tact, particularly in that your Walkie's not preaching a sermon. True. Walkie's writing a commentary. So he has as many pages as his editors are willing to give him to spell it out, spell it out. And you're speaking to a particular congregation that you pastor at a particular time, in a particular place, mm-hmm. a particular message from the Lord to us and to yourself. So I'm good with what you preached, 100%. That, that's actually a good point. And I didn't read this before I preached. I read it this, af- this morning. Um, and... Sometimes commentaries do on the one hand and on the other hand, which is exactly what you you don't want that in preaching. You want to hear a word from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And when I have read commentaries like this before I preach, it can sometimes take some of the punch out of a message. Yeah, and I don't think that you came in you know, guns a-blazing and, you know, it wasn't well, that I kind of... Well, I did say modestly yeah, and I with mean, humility you, pursue justice. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> nuanced, Tim. You, 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 you made a... You didn't equivocate, um, but it wasn't like... I didn't feel bashed over the head with, with, with your sermon. Um, but I do appreciate, and I mentioned this already, that you gave us something... R- to really chew on. I mean this in the most positive way possible. We got some cud to, to chew on, you mm-hmm. know, to really digest and kind of re-digest and re-digest and think about this um, seriously and it, it, because it's important, not just our opinion on Joseph, right? Like that's not ultimately what I think what we're trying to, we're talking about Joseph, obviously, but from a practical perspective, are how are we to be like Joseph? One, Joseph is not who we aspire to be like. We want to be like Christ. But in, in as much as Joseph was 
prefiguring Christ, like Christ in, in and of himself. And what does and, that look like for us? And Joseph embodies the disciple that Christ describes when he mm-hmm. says to his disciples, be, be shrewd as serpents. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what does that look like to us? And um, Walkie, in, in the next paragraph, um, again, very good insight here. I only read it this morning, but Joseph's brothers and even the audience expect Joseph to hold a grudge against them and to get even. And that's why uh, at the end, you know, I, when, when in chapter 45 and 50, they, they, they concoct this, this story. It's like, oh, no, dad's dead. What, what are we going to do? Joseph's going to come after us, right? Mm-hmm. So we hear the brothers and we're like, yeah, I'm thinking probably the same thing, but they don't know Joseph like we know him at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he says, Walkie says, perhaps Joseph was tempted and possibly spoke harshly out of his hurt and bitterness with a desire to get revenge which is a motive quite different from disciplining punishment, as any parent knows. But if so, he overcomes this temptation. For his biographer does not characterize him in this way. In the preceding act, the narrator records Pharaoh's characterization of Joseph as wise and discerning. Getting even is not wise. In this scene, the narrator connects his harsh accusation that the brothers are spies to his dream, not to their selling him as a slave. As the brothers own up to their crime against him, he does not gloat, but he weeps. Hmm. Joseph's tactics are harsh, but his emotions are tender. So, we, we were talking earlier, descriptive or prescriptive? Right. And you're on record as saying it's, it's a little of both. What a description of a man it's a gripping description. Yep. I, I feel when I read it that I, I see myself. Like I see these, you know, hot and cold. Hmm. That I can feel anger and compassion at the same time. What I don't see is the blend that's expressed is so... just, I guess, led by God hmm. is kind of what it seems to me. Uh, I'm not convinced that Joseph knew at every point that he was being led by God. I think he was just being led, but I think that's the, the result of that refinement that he went through for 20 plus years. Yeah. And that can't be replicated. You can't imitate that. You, you have to, You have to go through your own trials to get to that level of maybe a, a wise and godly living. Hmm. Yeah, he does kind of thread a needle a little bit. Yeah. Um, at least in my opinion. And Yeah, one of the things that you said, Phil, that I completely agreed with is that Joseph becomes a father figure to his brothers and to his father in providing for them. But I, I've said this to you before we started recording that 
I would make the argument that he becomes a father figure to them, even in his pastoring of them, mm-hmm. in, the, in his discipling of them, in the way he treats them. Um, not just physically providing for their needs, um, but also, you know, not, not letting them off <laughs> scot-free, um, not sweeping sin under the rug, not, um, not lording it over them, but, but being firm and caring about not just their physical needs, but their kind of their spiritual needs. Um, read Genesis forty-five twenty-four. This is a verse that didn't make it into the sermon. I, I wanted to, I just didn't know how to include it. <laughs> then he sent his brothers away, that's Joseph, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Like this is as, as uh, a non sequitur as it gets in the biblical narrative. <laughs> like where did that come from? It, it literally has no... We, we have never been told in any way, shape, or form that the brothers argue. I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to think that ten brothers wouldn't argue. Right. Regularly punch each other, insult one another, sarcasm... Uh, probably stealing from each other, you know, who, who took my cereal, you know, Hmm. (laughs) and there's crickets. So, but the, the youngest brother is telling his oldest brothers in his role as father to stop bickering. God has just blessed you beyond your wildest imagination. This is not the time to fight guys. For once, okay? We're at Disneyland. <laughs> Can't you just enjoy yourself? Stop arguing. <laughs> I spent a lot of money on this vacation. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is why I love scripture. There are these things in here which mm-hmm. they're just, they just make you smile and... And in, in one verse, you're, you're completely read, like you're completely known by God in that one little verse. It's like, mm. boy, God knows me. Yeah. And this is, to me, it also points to the fact that th- this isn't like f- fiction, that somebody wrote to tell a story with a, a morality behind it, you know. Like th- th- these things happened... And the, the the number it's of re, it's yeah. a real thing. Like to your point, like anybody who has any siblings, even if you have one sibling, you know there's no way you go on a trip and you don't get in some type of argument. And this is their what their second time to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, the, to to your point about the inspiration of scripture, the sheer number of coincidences that have to be piled on top of one another for that one verse to have made the final cut of Holy Bible is greater than the likelihood of the Big Bang. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's greater than the number of stars in the universe. It's 10 to the 24th power. It's some crazy number. And I'm, I'm making that up, not as a kind of a scholarly statement, but as just a pastoral kind of firm elbow into the rib of my 
buddy who's an agnostic, hypothetical, Pauline interlocutor, interlocutor. Um, but if you're trying to present something as clean and you know persuasive, you just wouldn't be that smart to include things that don't matter and yet are so illuminative and in line with it's it's a very relevant irrelevancy in the in the text hmm. and the skill and the intelligence it would take to include it and then for that not to drop out it just just doesn't work yeah so it does tend it's it's along the lines for people who talk about canonicity and and the inerrancy and an authority of scripture it tends to be along the lines of its um the harmony of the whole kind of a thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just holds together um i do i do want to get to the application piece in one second but i just want to make one more note before we we go there it's amazing to me how quickly we see God's covenantal promise start to play out in the world through this family. Um, where, you know, God said he's going to bless all nations. And we start seeing that here. I mean, very, very clearly, in my opinion, through how Egypt is providing, um, I, I, I happen to glance down at my Bible and see, um, uh, so in, in 45, 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Yeah. And, and Pharaoh becomes an out, like, you know. The sons of Israel received wagons from Joseph mm-hmm. to go back and collect their goods at the command of Pharaoh. It's the, <laughs> it's another, it's it's a it's a prequel to Cyrus and you know the the restoration after the exile. It's that kind of, um, yeah, it's that kind of thing. So it, that that wasn't part of the thrust of your message, obviously, but I just couldn't help but. I see you just, it's kind of drenching the text here to me. And you can see also prefigurations of the Exodus because Israel is, and his family is being, is already being enriched by Egypt. Mm. And um, the gospel application of that is that it's God's will to enrich his people through unbelievers mm. and the reappropriation of worldly resources through lawful means and divinely providential means which is what you see in the Joseph story should be expected yeah you made you made that point in a way that wisdom wisdom is, is profitable, profitable right yeah yeah now it this is not the prosperity message that <laughs> people have heard yeah but um, you should expect that long uh, eugene peterson long obedience in the same direction long faithfulness long suffering sh- can produce kind of quirky 
um, irregularities in uh, an unbeliever's sort of trajectory, expectation. And um, um, predictably, you know, predictably unpredictable. And that, that should, that should be something of, um, of some iron bands around the broken hearts of our flock that, to fortify us in the long persevering journey of humble Christ-like faithfulness, Joseph-like faithfulness, that he will preserve you, he will bless you, mm. and he will vindicate you. And it might come in ways that would just shock you if if you knew right now what's going to happen in 20 years' time. Mm. That's one of the ways that the message hit me. It was uh, just a, 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 a reminder and a summons to uh, stop complaining as much, trust God, and try to adapt to my difficult circumstances, whatever they are, knowing that... Um, he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Amen. Second Corinthians five. Hmm. Yeah, I thought Psalm twenty three, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wa- I shall not lack mm-hmm. is how the King James puts it. So we we are provided for. Um and obviously we, we see that pretty in in very almost miraculous ways, certainly providential ways in the story of Joseph and his and his brothers and the twenty plus years of kind of what Joseph his it it's like his Elon Musk story, you know, like he, I I don't think you can top this this kind of rise to prominence no. in history. Like he just kind of went from left in a ditch to you know the prime yeah. minister of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's that's pretty Elon Musk. Yeah. Hmm. Um. To to try to kind of bring us back around. Um, you one your second point: wisdom pursues justice, and we've been talking about this. And I actually had a couple. Um, people mentioned to me after the service yesterday, actually one of our other uh, brothers in the session said, Oh, you guys really need to talk about this at the podcast. Okay. Your, your, your point about modestly pursuing justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether we, we talked about it from a Jacob or a, from a Joseph perspective, was he right? Was he wrong? I think you and I are both of the opinion that, and I think the Bible backs us up on this, so I feel like we're of the right opinion that uh that he was he was wise and he was god fearing and what he did was um right and good for his for his brothers. but what does that look like f- for us because one something that you mentioned as we were chit chatting with our coffee and everything before we started recording today was we often as Christians are willing to be walked over for the sake of being gracious or humble um, or we'll, we'll kind of ignore things that, that are done 
ways that we're sinned against or, or wronged, whether personally or, or generically. So what is it, what's that line look like? What, what are we, what should we be striving for? Because I would agree with your statement that we should be pursuing justice. God is a God of justice, and we are not God. We're not the judge, the ultimate judge. But he doesn't, he doesn't ignore sin. And I don't think he tells us to ignore our sin. We're to repent of sin, which is an acknowledgement that we have sinned and that we can't, that we need his forgiveness because we've created a debt that we cannot pay. So that's not ignorance. That's not, in a way, that's pursuing justice against, ourse- against ourselves, even, um, by appealing to, to God's gracious gospel you know and what jesus has done for us so anyway uh bringing it back <laughs> how, what are we to do with this well just starting where where you left off there <clears throat> pursuing justice has to start with ourselves that's the plank um speck mm. mm-hmm. r- ratio yeah, before you point out the speck in your brother's you, eye, you've, you've got a big, you've blank. got a big problem. Your brother has a little problem, and if you're willing to admit that ratio of problem distribution, then we're on the right track for, for justice. How many years did Joseph spend preparing um, the tweezers for his, or or the, you know, the the claw that had to remove that? embedded two by four so that's pretty good ratio mm. and we're talking the the, the spec removal took uh, how, however long it takes to get to finish up 10 sacks of grain and travel from canaan to egypt twice let's just say it's a year i don't know i didn't i didn't research the the right. travel times here. <laughs> I didn't put them in my Google, Google Maps, Maps yeah. <laughs> and then set the date. When do you want to travel? Um, how about, I don't know, 1500 BC. <laughs> so it didn't give me that option. But le- let's assume it, took, it takes a year from when Jacob's like, what are you knuckleheads doing? Get up and go get us some grain. You, you guys are worthless. Right. When he says that to the time when Joseph says, Go on home and don't quarrel along the way. And then they finally load up the, the U-Haul and start you, the U-Camels and start uh, you know, making their way towards Goshen. If that was a year, maybe 18 months. So 20 years for Joseph's self-preparation and one year for the speck removal. So there's one practical application. How much time have you spent? I'll be uh, uber-personal here, I won't overshare, but um, um, in marriage, there is, um, let's say you spent the first 20 years, and I've been married coming on 31 years this this summer, this next summer. Let's Let's say you spent the first 20 years of your marriage harshly criticizing your wife and your children. So, to apply the, the ratio, that's 400 years of self-preparation. 
if you do 20 years for every year that you aggrieved and wronged and, and troubled these people. In Joseph's case, if we even it out and said he was, he was, a, a knuckle, he was kind of a knucklehead and, and an arrogant you-know-what for 20 years, and God gave him 20 years to, to marinate in that. So the next 20 years to my 40th anniversary, this person that I'm talking about who spent the first 20 years of marriage mm -hmm. being a jerk, He's got 20 more years just to think about that. And, and uh, Hippocratic Oath in marriage, do no harm. And then in the 41st year, he can undertake some eye surgery perhaps. But our, our scale, my point in this, our scale is just way off in mm. pursuing justice because we don't normally think highly enough of our own sin we think too highly of ourselves mm -hmm. and not highly enough of our neighbor. Um, that's one thought in terms of practically. But being molested by your uncle or abused by your father or your mother, um, being molested by the boy on the, on the bus in eighth grade, uh, what does justice look like there? Um, flagrant racism, even implicit racism, which I believe exists. How do, how do you do that? Because, I mean, we Christians can talk about marriage, but th those are a little bit harder mm -hmm. and a little bit more in the center of the current cultural debate. And my answer is modestly, creatively, if possible, with a sense of humor and without revenge. Mm -hmm. And how to do that, I think you can learn a lot from Joseph, too, because God had to work out, work in that sense of humor, because I think he had a sense of humor, work in the tenderness. Maybe it never left. In Joseph's case, maybe he's such a godly man that he never lost. Even in the pit, he's, he was pleading for his life, we're told. Um, but he also describes himself to Pharaoh as having been stolen. So he didn't have any problem identifying that what was done to him was wrong. He was stolen from his family by his own family. So um, is there a way to handle these gross, flagrant sins that take place even, it must be said, even in the church and even in covenant families, is there a way to address those, those horrific crimes and to, to pursue justice, even get a little justice? And, um, you know, the, the example in our discussion, our, we, we discuss sermon as, as a family, usually led by my wife, and I'm listening to the interactions and I get, I always get a little critique. Uh, my, my family's tough. They're a tough audience, <laughs> but, um, um, and the, the, the example I gave here, uh, one of my kids felt that I, I gave, I let Joseph off the hook too much that Joseph that we aren't to pursue justice 
that, that we're to, to humbly accept indignities. And, and the example I gave, I, and I agree that I maybe gave Joseph a little too much, too much room on that, possibly. Um, but the example I gave was in terms of a humble pursuit of justice or a modest pursuit of justice. A mixed-race couple or a minority couple comes to a majority culture white church and they just feel like they just are not fitting in. Mm. Um, and they don't feel like people are, are lifting kind of their pinky finger to help them. Even though, in reality, they probably are trying to help them in, in terms of fitting in and so forth. They're just, they feel like fish out of water. I think there's, there's space there for a humble modest pursuit of justice not you know standing up on the platform and screaming at the top of your lungs that's that's an immodest and probably an angry pursuit of justice but a humble modest pursuit of justice in helping this church become more caring for the least the last and the lost you know someone who doesn't eat the same food as they do and enjoy the same music as they do and have the same upbringing as they do and even speak the same first language as they do. Mm. Extra work is required. And the small person, in this case Joseph, is the small person. Uh, found a, He became a, the big man, but he found a way to, to help his brothers come to a sense of their sin. Um, the first time that they confessed openly what had happened to their brother Joseph, not knowing that it was Joseph that they were speaking to, says, we don't know what happened to them, to him. Mm. But the second time was, you know, um, or rather, he's no more. But the second time is, we don't know what happened to him. You know, we are guilty of his blood. So... Um, Joseph's method of a humble pursuit of justice was effective. How, how much we can imitate that, like you said, threading the needle, I'm not sure, but it definitely starts with some soul searching and submitting ourselves to the rough providences of God in our lives and, and um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, spirit of wisdom, and then go for it. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I can't add anything better to it, so I'm not going to try. But I appreciate, I appreciate the challenge um, from your mouth through the working of the Spirit, and um, we have a lot of work to do. I think I'll just speak for our church. You know, we have a lot of work to do um, in thinking through that, and and. We've been talking about getting out of the four walls and getting uncomfortable and, and things along those lines as a vision for our church. And I think this, this kind of fits right in there too, because it's not just um, for the sake of it or kind of like, you know, do whatever. It's w with wisdom, you know, with, uh, with a purpose humbly, meekly, um, 
not introspectively like inward focus, but you know, with, with understanding our, our foibles and our weaknesses and, and kind of trusting in Christ for those things and taking steps of, of faith, knowing what our deficiencies are and not being crippled by that, but going, yeah, we know we're not very good at this, but we're going to, we're going to give it our best shot and we're going to trust God and we're going to go forth and, and I think we could take a similar approach when it comes to modest justice seeking. Yes. And of course, the last point of the sermon kind of ties that down. What does it look like? Like, do something. You know, there, there should be practical... <laughs> Nike, just do it. Just do it. There, there's, there should be some practical outworking. Mm-hmm. And we should expect it to, to be blessed by God. Amen. Well, we'll find the fruit. And we'll go in that direction. Um, thanks for the conversation today, Phil. Thanks for the sermon. As always, what a blessing. Um, I'm excited that we have more to talk about with Joseph, too, that that he gets a little bit more play in the sermon series, although I'm disappointed that we only have a couple weeks left before the uh, the calendar changes to 2024, and we'll set our sights on, on something else. But... Um, Nevertheless, we made it through a full year of, I don't remember when our first podcast recording was, I'll have to look that up, but I feel like we're... We're coming up on an anniversary, ha- have perhaps. A, have approached, if not already, uh, uh, we might have missed it. You might have to, <laughs> we might have, to have a uh, retroactive anniversary uh, episode, but um, it was great being with you again this week, and um, I think we'll... We'll have to see what the holiday looks like next week. You're off for the holiday, and uh, next week is Christmas. So my hunch is that we'll probably be back maybe in the new year for the next uh, edition of the Deeper Cut, but we'll see. Trust the Lord and his timing with that. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed the conversation today and, and have been blessed by the sermon series and the patriarchs. Um, we would love for you to join us, as always, you know, we have open seats and we will make room. We'll actually, we'll have to move Rocky out of the room if need be. He won't be happy about it, but we can do it. Uh, you, you're more important to us than the, uh, the mascot for the show. So we'd love to have you. Um, and if, if you're unable to join us for a recording, we'd love to hear your thoughts and whether these episodes are a blessing to you, or if you have questions about anything we shared and, uh, we, As always, pray that you would be blessed this upcoming week and we'll catch you next time on The Deeper Cut. Mm